0: Coming up on this week's show, we get some nostalgic happy memories with Johnny Millennium, the happy console gamer.
1: Plus a new Neo Geo console, but is it worth your money? And turning Mario Maker 2 into a dungeon crawler.
0: This week's show is brought to you by our good friends at Bitmap Books and their brand new book, Metal Slug, The Ultimate History. Pre-orders available now at bitmapbooks.co.uk. And The Economist, the smart guide to the forces changing your world. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 186. Your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Ravi Abbott.
1: And me, Joe Fox.
0: And welcome to this week's podcast. Really appreciate you joining us again this week. Now, on the Retro Hour, I mean, we like to think that we cover so much to do with retro gaming. That could be a programmer... It could be an artist, it could be a musician who worked on maybe one of our favourite games growing up.
1: Or even a CEO or a
0: games designer. It could be anyone who's literally done something in the world of retro gaming that's helped either shape it now or us. And one thing that we love talking about is other people's gaming memories. And I love it when we get people that we're fans of on the podcast as well. Now this week, we're going to be joined by a guy who's been on YouTube now for 11 years. And you think back to YouTube in... 2008 what a different time it was back then and i don't know about you guys but i think for me the earliest retro gaming youtubers i watched were um steve benway big fan of him back in the day and still am and avgn
2: yeah i have to agree for me it was it was 100% avgn and ScrewAttack. yeah who were kind of you know they helped avgn and out and stuff but then finding out today that there was actually some others around yeah. then in 2008 <laughs> it was very
0: very interesting because then, I mean, you had AVGN, iRick Gamer, he came along as well. But it kind of seemed like there was this time when it was cool to kind of just find bad old games and bash them. That's what everyone was suddenly doing on yeah, YouTube. Yeah, there,
1: there, there was a few channels. I, I remember one called Biff Plays Games yeah, as well. Jaguar which, games. Yeah, Jaguar Games. Yeah, which was Jaguar and Atari, and that was very Atari-focused ones. But um, this week, we've got Johnny Millennium on, and he's happy console gamer. And he he's really got a nice kind of take on nostalgia memories, and kind of relates to all of us. So in this talk that we're doing, we're talking about, you know, the English scene and the Canadian scene because he was actually born in England.
0: Yeah, and he moved over there when he was very young. And I think you're right there, his channel, I mean, he focuses on, you know, those kind of warm, happy, nostalgic memories of retro gaming, which this chat we're going to have with him, I mean, we're going to cover so much in it as well. It's going to be something I think anyone who's got a passion for games and has done for a long time, like us guys, and Johnny as well, you're going to relate to a lot of what we're going to talk about in this interview. So one of our favourite YouTubers, Johnny Millennium, the happy console gamer on the show as our special guest in around 15 minutes from now. Now, before we get into that, so many people have been in touch, excited about this. Pre-orders finally opened last week for Metal Slug, The Ultimate History. Now, this is from our sponsor, Bitmap Books. Now, we were talking last week about what a huge fan you are, Joe, of Metal Slug.
2: Yeah, I think I've played... Uh, completed every single Metal Slug game uh, for Xbox One on the re-releases in the last two weeks with my wife. So I'm really, really, really excited to get my hands on this book.
0: What do you think it is about Metal Slug that makes it so good?
2: I think it's the real easy kind of like pick up and play, you know, it's just, it's not like modern games. You just pick it up, you play it. It's got beautiful graphics. It's got that beautiful gameplay as well. Uh, and you could just, I think it, for me, it's just the fact that you can just jump in and play it. And it's just every single time it's so good. And every single time, even though it's an old arcade game, you have a different experience. Yeah. So I think this book, you know, I think it's a must have for any sort of kind of SNK fan. Neo Geo fan and obviously Metal Slug Flan. Uh, we've got 452 pages here. Of very just in kind depth. Of very, very, very in depth. Original artwork. Some of the artwork that SNK don't even have anymore, apparently. That's crazy, isn't it? Uh, which is really, really <laughs> crazy. So I'm really looking forward to this one.
0: Now, this is the first officially endorsed yeah. Metal Slug book by SNK, which is huge. And they've given Bitmap Books unprecedented access to their huge archives. You're going to see in here high-resolution concept artwork, illustrations, a lot of it has been made public for the first time, and also. There's 11 exclusive, massively in-depth interviews in there as well with key members of the development team. And like Sam was telling us on the show a couple of weeks ago, he's got some actual concept artwork from the development team showing stuff like Metal Slug Zero, in kind of the prototype game that never came out. Mm. Um, Stuff that even SNK haven't got in their archives. If you've got your web browser open right now, obviously, you'll be really helping out the podcast by showing our sponsors some love. Metal Slug, the ultimate history. Pre-orders are open right now, and you can check it out on their website, bitmapbooks.co.uk. And another way
1: that you can help the podcast is by donating. So we have a supporters page on theretrohour.com and all your donations basically go into the show. Help
0: us keep running and just keep us chugging along. If you make a donation, think of it as a tip jar. We do say this, everything that we get through listener donations, all of it goes back into the running of the podcast 100%. And for doing it, you're going to find your place in the most prestigious high score table. In the world of retro gaming, I'm not going to make you do the drum roll, Joe. And I keep looking at me like, is he going to ask me this? <laughs> like week? my hands are just like trembling <laughs> for the drum roll. Do you want to do it? Yeah, go on then. Go on, go on. Everyone wants to do it. That's why his band's taken off. Oh, I lost so, it. I lost it not, anyway. You're not, the, you're not even the drummer in your band. I'm not even the you? drummer now. You I'm should good. be though, Joe. <laughs> so this week, thank you so much for making a donation. Daniel Oskis, John Martirana. James Alston and Michael Smith who all made donations into the running of the show and you can either do it straight through PayPal, paypal at theretrohour.com or click on the supporters section of our website at theretrohour.com. Now while we're talking about great things this week as well, TDK, we're a big fan of him.
1: Oh yes, TDK is an awesome chip artist and uh, he even does chip with a fiddle which is fantastic. (laughs) (laughs) Um, What is that? Uh, you know, like a fiddle violin. Over cheap had, Yeah, wow. yeah, <laughs> absolutely amazing. And I saw him in Amiga, Germany. He's just released a new album. So this is called Me, and it's currently available for around £5 for the digital download. Okay. And £7.50 to buy it on CD. And there's some awesome beats in there. I think he's been watching a bit of Stranger Things because you can hear,
0: yeah. hear a bit of influence in that. <laughs> you played me a little clip of it before. It is very Stranger Things influence. But yeah, we had him on the podcast a couple of years ago, didn't we? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, yeah. Fant- fantastic chip June artist. Huge fan of him. So if you want to find out more, I'll put a link in our show notes at theretrohour.com. Now, before we chat to Johnny Millennium, the happy console gamer, um, a few good stories have caught our interest this week. This looks incredible. So this is a plug-and-play GPU that modernizes retro consoles.
1: Yeah, so, okay, this is probably the coolest thing that I've ever seen in retro in a long, long time. So they've just done a Indiegogo campaign and they've got 340,000 already. Now, each one of these devices is around 57 pounds. Every kind of image that you're using, it will improve as it passes through this HDMI port. Now, it has a retro mode in it, So even if you have modern consoles, what you can do is you can select the retro mode and it will force the aspect ratio to go 4 by 3. But if you also have something like this old Dreamcast cable, uh, they've just released a HDMI cable for the Dreamcast. There's also a lot of HDMI solutions for older consoles. If you then put this as the pass-through of that, you get upscaling, you get all these kind of effects on that, and it massively improves the picture. If you look at the video, you'll see the kind of comparisons that they've got. Of they're playing a lot of old games, you know they've got a uh, Mario Kart here, they've got um, Sonic Adventures as well, and they're running it. Wow. With the HD stuff, I I just could not believe that it actually works, but it enhances. The colour, it enhances the depth of the image, a lot of stuff. So even if you had this at home on your kind of main system, you'd get a lot of improvements from it. You can even use it on Fortnite or your new PC stuff.
0: It's crazy, though, because, yeah, looking at this, I mean, they're running, like, Sonic Adventure through it and stuff, and, uh, you know, the tagline is there, make your retro games look like a modern game. Yeah. So, I mean, I imagine it's going to be quite pricey to get all this set up. Because, I mean, if you've got, like, you're going to have to get an HDMI solution for your Dreamcast or N64 yeah. and then this as well. But I mean, you're not going to get better looking than this. from No, the no. So yeah. I,
1: I think if you had like a Framemeister yeah. then. But also if you think about it, this is like multiple use. So This is use on absolutely everything that has HDMI. So it's not just going to be set for one system.
0: Yeah, looks cool though. Yeah, the fact that I love anything that can improve. Because I mean, you know, we often find this when you go back to a retro game that you haven't played for a long time. Do you often get shocked at, it doesn't look quite as good as you remembered it. <laughs> you think, yeah. I sure yeah. look better than that when I played it. Like, yeah, actually. I
2: think I find that with, like, early PS1 games, yeah, yeah. like the polygons <laughs> on them and
1: stuff. But, but I also think this will probably work with all those mini consoles, won't it? Yeah, they're, yeah,
0: yeah, they're all HDMI straight away. So. Yeah, good shout. So if you want to find out more about that, I'll show that in this week's show notes as well. Now, the Neo Geo, that was always a system that, you know, my school... I remember hearing you know whispers around the playground of this thing that only rich kids had.
2: I think I think that's really the case still. Who yeah. <laughs> I mean, the rich kids do have it? Um, it is kind of like one of those legendary consoles. So last year we did get the Neo Geo Mini, which I don't think kind of got the same uh, uplift as like the Snes Mini and the NES Mini did. But they have they are re-releasing the Samurai Showdown Limited Edition Neo Geo Mini. Uh, which is apparently the more superior, kind of like revamped version of that, apparently. Okay. So first off, it is going to be more expensive. The original Neo Geo Mini came out at $109 in America. Now it's about $89. This one's going to be $140, but it does come straight away with the actual controllers. So with the the fans of the Neo Geo no, it was the the Neo Geo Mini. It was the arcade and it came with a little screen on the arcade. So the screen is actually on
0: yeah it's a little tabletop it's a little tabletop
2: which is kind of cute but let's be honest we want to play it with the controller on the screen so you needed to buy the controller you needed to buy the hdmi cable you needed to set it up and everything but the new one comes with that already
0: right which i think is
2: pretty cool uh that appeals
1: to me straight away a lot more
0: it's we we saw these guys didn't we at retro Messen in norway
1: yeah, yeah. And, and the actual original Neo Geo Mini was pretty awesome. Yeah, you know, but yeah. but this sounds like it's just a step up of th- it's the game. It's just you know? for me.
2: I think it's a step up, and it's what it's what we've asked for. We wanted it all to come in a bundle. You don't you don't want to go around trying to find buy the controller separately and stuff like that. Because I've seen these like in game, but without any of the accessories. Now we're going to get the accessories, and it's also going to come with more games. Um, So it does come with the first six Samurai Showdown games, whereas the previous one only came with three. Right. Obviously, with it being Samurai Showdown Special Edition, (laughs) I would expect that. And also then we've got three new colour variants as well. We've got a clear, like a clear, you know, crystal white, clear blue, and a clear red. Uh, And for me, I think they just look a lot more slick than the original one, which was kind of like black and bluey pink.
0: Um those controllers look sexy as well. Yeah, yeah. they're pretty good controllers. <laughs> yeah, again, I mean Neo Geo, it's uh, obviously a system I, I heard a lot about back in the day, but I haven't got I mean, I think I've played a couple of them at retro gaming shows. Yeah. But because they were so expensive and you never saw them going into like electronics boutique or something, did you back in the day? No so It's it's a new catalogue for me to explore, so yeah, it does definitely appeal to me this, I think.
2: I think you get I think it's forty games. I might be wrong. Forty games on this as well. In total, uh, which, to be fair, the Neo Geo console itself is going to set you back like three, four hundred pounds if you want one now, and then the games on them are at least like thirty to fifty quid for you know the bog standard. So it's pretty good, pretty good buy in my opinion. And it's you know like I say, it's now in that neat package with the controllers and HDMI cable as well.
0: Well, speaking of buying things. Have you got your Nintendo Switch yet that you keep saying you might go? No, I've not got it yet. Joe, <laughs> you like, haven't played Mario Maker 2 then? No, I haven't, unfortunately. <laughs> well, I finally unpacked mine out, my shrink wrap. You know, we're talking about this from Ravry was away, weren't yeah. we? That I bought it, and it was sitting on my shelf like two weeks. Um, <laughs> finally played it. amazing game. It actually does work very well on the screen. You know what oh, we're talking about. that. But I haven't tried this. So apparently people are <laughs> creating first-person dungeon crawlers using Mario Maker 2.
1: Yeah, this is absolutely insane. So uh, a Japanese user of uh, Mario Maker 2 has decided to make a dungeon crawler. And if you think about how dungeon crawlers work, you've usually got a main screen, which is in a kind of a 3D perspective. Then you've got an above view or a view of where you are in the map. And then you've got another view at the side. Now, he's managed to basically change it so that all the pipes or the stars and everything are creating this full 3d world and you can travel through there's basic puzzles there's enemies and uh you have to solve scenarios to get like to hard to reach areas so there's kind of a aim of this game but it, it seems like it's a very experimental game and it's pushing the mario maker to its limits i've seen some very glitch stuff recently that people have been doing and the levels look absolutely impossible but this one looks like it could be good fun especially if you're a dungeon crawler fan
0: Yeah, i mean the mario maker game was never intended to do stuff like this so it's incredible that he's done it you know the thing about mario maker 2 is you can obviously send other people your levels to try out so if you want to try this you've got to put the code in p5969855g so if you want to play 3D maze House on your Switch on Mario Maker 2. Put that level code in. I'm going to try that as soon as I get home, actually.
1: Yeah, it, it looks mad. I've just been watching the videos, and I'm, I'm just trying to work out how it all works and how he's coded it, and it's just
0: mental. So while we're talking about this, actually, I'm going to put the link um, from an article in Tech Times in our show notes. Has anyone else seen this hellish Super Mario Maker 2 level?
2: Have I'm, I've been tagged <laughs> in it by a few friends asking me if I could do it, yeah and I'm like, no, I couldn't do it. And they've got so much confidence in me. They're like, oh, a couple of goes, and you'd be able to nail that. And I'm like,
0: no. This is that he's got like everything spinning. Literally, yeah. you've got to be pixel perfect. Yeah, it's sadistic, isn't it? What yeah. do you look at? It, it is. So I'll put that video in the show notes as well. Definitely worth a look. um I don't think I'd even attempt that, joke <laughs>
1: I, I, remember <laughs> I remember one when Mario Maker One was out, and it was like you get fired in the air, and if you're hit by a shell in a certain way, then you'd get fired like a pinball
0: <laughs> across the <whole laughs> level. it was quite cool. Yeah creativity in those kind of games never ceases to amaze me. Really good. Now before we get into our chat with Johnny Millennium, just want to give a big thank you to our very good friends at The Economist. Now, if you're regular listening, you'll know The Economist have been a huge supporter of our podcast. And they've been going for a long time here in Britain, 170 years. They've been providing facts that matter, helping you make decisions on important stories, which we actually think, you know, the amount of noise out there on social media and that these days, it's more important than ever that you get the real story and the facts about things that are going to change your world. And they cover so much in there as well. Stuff like politics, business, science, technology, video games as well. And every week, we look at an article in The Economist that we find really interesting, like... This week, what have you been reading about?
1: Yeah, I've been reading about um, kind of wireless speakers, headphones, Bluetooth speakers. And I don't know if you've noticed this, but uh, being a ex-sound engineer, I get really annoyed when I see all these people with these white iPod like me. earphones <laughs> listening to music because it sounds absolutely rubbish in It them. does. And, you know, quite a lot of the Bluetooth speakers, they're good, but they're not like, you're not going to have that as your home cinema system or anything, but now they're saying that there's this new one called the Phantom and it's going to be £3,000.
0: A Bluetooth speaker? Yes, okay. and it's
1: going to be the best wireless Bluetooth speaker available in the world. I say just get some wired speakers, <laughs> <still>. <laughs> it'll be a lot cheaper. <laughs> you get a better sound.
0: I think it does make such a big difference when you're gaming as well, doesn't it? Yeah. Having good speakers and like, yeah, I was playing a load of retro games over the weekend. I meant sorry, Jaguar setup actually, which um, when you're playing Tempest 2000, and you've got that rave soundtrack listening on your tinny little speaker on your CRT. <laughs> you, know, you want it on a hi-fi system. You want
1: big stereo separation It's yeah. like yeah, big bass on there.
0: If I did have a Bluetooth speaker, I could listen to that soundtrack in the garden, I guess. That would be, yeah. be kind of cool. So that's the kind of thing you can read about in The Economist. They cover so much. And they're going to help you decide. You know, if you're the kind of person like us who never stops asking questions, we'd like to actually give you a free copy of The Economist. If you live in the UK, we've got a little offer. All you have to do is grab your phone right now. Text the word retro and send it to 78070 and a free copy of The Economist will arrive. It'll drop through your door. All you have to do is text retro and send it to 78070. You'll be supporting our podcast as well. Thanks to our good friends at The Economist, the smart guide to the forces changing your world. Now, while we're talking about things that you might want to listen to, um, let's give a big shout to another very good retro gaming podcast you may want to check out.
1: Yeah, so Retro Asylum did a fantastic episode last week, which was on Command & Conquer. And these boys have been going since 2011. So check out their show, support them.
0: We were just a glint in our father's eye when they started back in the day, weren't we? So, yeah, (laughs) Retro Asylum, do check them out. Massive retro gaming podcast. Right then, let's get all nostalgic with this week's special guest, Johnny Millennium, the happy console gamer. You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast, and it is our pleasure to welcome this week's very special guest, one of our favorite YouTubers, and it's amazing to have him on the show this week. Let's welcome to the Retro Hour, Johnny Millennium, the happy console gamer.
3: I want to say thank you so much, and uh, I'm asked to do a lot of podcasts, and I'm always so humbled by that. But you know what? You guys are from England. I'm British as well. And I want to come in and absolutely support your podcast for sure.
0: So, what's the story there? Thanks. You grew up in Canada, but you were, you, were you born in Britain. Then, were you all? Yeah, I was
3: born in uh, Wakefield in Yorkshire. Wow. Uh, on you know near Jewsbury Road uh, in 1974. So I kind of grew up there. My father was a manager of some like stores out there, and then he got another opportunity to come to Canada, which was. Ontario. So we moved in like 1980, 1981. I know it was when Empire Strikes Back came out because I came to Canada and saw Empire Strikes Back, and uh, and then I, then yeah, then I kind of became Canadian. But uh, I'm I'm still a British citizen. I've never changed any of that. So even to this day, I'm still a British citizen.
0: Yeah, because I lived in Leeds for many years. So yeah, it's, it's you know not far
3: from there. Yeah, my parents had friends in Leeds for sure. They're still there. Uh, my parents' friends are still in Leeds. So, yeah, I, I, I remember England, and I have a lot of affection to it. Uh, but it's really strange for me. I've never felt – how do I describe this? I've never felt fully Canadian. I feel very British. Mm-hmm. But when I go to England, I have this kind of canadian american accent, and nobody thinks I'm British. They all call me Yank. You know, I remember going there when I was 21, and these kids in a, a bus, they're like, uh, they were talking to me, and they're like, are you a Yank? And I'm like, I, I, I guess I, I am. I'm Canadian. No? <laughs> I never really fit in in either country, which is strange. Even my wife is Canadian um, and my mom's still got a, uh, a British accent, a very Yorkshire accent at that. Too. Yeah, I, I saw on your YouTube channel that Q&A episode you did with her. Yeah, oh, that's, oh that's, yeah. that's amazing. But yeah, <laughs> yeah I was really, uh, I saw you guys doing this podcast and I was like, oh, thank you for inviting me. It's been, it's been a long time since I've been on a podcast. It's been a, quite a few years, actually
1: well we always ask a question of our guests and that's uh, what your earliest video gaming memory was and I don't know if yours will be in Britain or Canada
3: um it would be in Canada I remember my father bought an Atari 2600 and I remember like playing uh, like the tank game on it I think it was called combat and uh, I'd kind of go against my dad and I used to love you know getting my tank and shooting at him and blowing him up and made me feel it made me feel pretty good and I think that's the earliest memory and my dad was pretty cool because in, God, it was 1981, my dad moved to Canada, and he became manager of the world's biggest bookstore in Toronto, Ontario, and so he'd always bring me to the bookstore, and for lunch, he'd, get, he'd pay one of the employees to take me out to the one of the local arcades and buy me lunch and stuff like that, It was it was pretty cool, so I got to play all the old school arcade games in you know downtown uh, Toronto, uh, down in the, you know, the 80s, so I was playing at Tron and all those things. So it was, very, it was a very interesting and fun time, really honestly, isn't it, the beginning of video gaming.
2: So you've mentioned in your show before that you used to play D&D. Did you play a lot?
3: Well, uh, I, I still to this day wish I could play more than what I do. Uh, I think when I was younger we would all get together in the neighborhood and we'd start playing, but most of the day we'd just start, we'd build uh, character sheets, we'd build our characters, and then we'd start playing the game hours and hours later. The game would last for 10 minutes, everybody would kill each other, or some stupid thing <laughs> would happen, or an argument would break out. And then I didn't, you know, when I was a teenager, I started smoking cigarettes, and then for some reason I quit uh, playing d I think, you know, a lack of oxygen to my brain. <laughs> and, and then... Like eighteen years later, when I decided to quit cigarettes, I, I started to. This was about two thousand and eight. I, st- I all of a sudden got this huge urge to play D anD D, and that's when I started playing again. But I tell you, you guys know when you get older, getting your friends together to do anything is impossible, and it's been very hard for me. I, I really, I'd li- I'd like to play every week. It's impossible though. It's, you know, I think there's a big
0: crossover there as well, especially in those early days of video games. It seemed like a lot of the D&D crowd kind of went onto video games. You know, it was quite a big crossover.
3: Yeah. Oh, for sure. Like, when you played D&D back in, oh, my God, like 1987, 88, all you wanted to do was have that experience, uh, you know, on your own in, in a way. You uh, And then video gaming kind of showed the light that you could possibly do that. Uh, and it was really exciting to... Like, for me, discovering Fantasy Star for the first time and realizing that I don't have to argue with my friends. I don't have to play for, like, half an hour and call it a day. I could play for hours and hours in this Dungeons & Dragons kind of experience, uh, which was the beginning of JRPGs. I didn't really know that at the time, and so that was kind of exciting. That was really the beginning of JRPGs and, uh, like, video gaming in general, like, to do with RPGs. It was, it was cool. Well, you
1: also went to film school, and uh, were you initially interested in computer art and CG?
3: Um, I think I was. I since I was like five years old, I was always a hand-drawn artist, and so I'd, I'd be drawing all the time. And I think what I always wanted to be was a comic book artist. And then it was just after my dad died when I was about twenty-three. I thought, okay, I got to go back to school. So I went to Vancouver Film School and I studied uh, animation. That's what I basically studied, and I uh, did a lot of storyboarding and things like that, and it was a good foundation, and I went off and worked in the industry for a while. I did TV commercials and things like that, and, and I worked in a software company, drawing maps for years. It was, I've had a really strange career. It's been really weird, but it was really, I took all of that art and uh, storyboarding, and then, I oh God, it must be like early 2005, I started to make my own kind of films and just do my own stuff in my backyard with my friends. Even though I was I was in my like late twenties at that point, it was still experimentation zone. And I started to make you know like uh, you know experimental films and stuff like that. It was like a lot of fun. And I was like, wait a second, I really like this a lot more than storyboarding or comic books because I can add music and I can create more of an atmosphere. And so I, I really enjoyed that. but I am a comic book artist. I'm an artist, and I just. I just recently started to draw again. It's been, I know it sounds really crazy to you guys, but realistically 17 years since I drew. Wow. And I've been really getting back into that a lot, but, uh, it really helped in to the beginnings of doing the show. And, uh, doing little skits and things like that. And it took me a long time to get better at it. But over time, the more and more you do something, the better at it you get. So uh, that's kind of like, yeah, where I kind of took video gaming and all that kind of stuff and turned it into an arts And then it turned into uh, a show on YouTube, which is even stranger. It's weird how things like that happen.
0: One thing I really love about your channel is that kind of, you know, warm, nostalgic feel you get from watching a lot of your videos and the stories that you tell. And there's one that you posted um, last Christmas of your nephew getting his first right. Nintendo, a Nintendo Switch. And I think we can all relate to that, that moment when you you open it and your eyes are on stalks, you know, when you get this first system. Yeah. I mean,
3: do you remember getting yours as well? Was it a similar experience back in the day? You, you know, thank you for bringing that up. And for all of you guys, you, you must have similar experiences as well. You know, those magical moments at Christmas when you get an amazing present. And the reason why I put up my nephew's video was because... I could never have it. You know, back in 1987, when my father gave me my first NES, I wish there was video of that. I wish there was some representation of that. All that exists is our memories, because in back in our day, like we didn't film anything. We didn't have cell phones like we do now. And so the very first time I got an NES was a, a pretty wonderful time that I played uh, ice hockey because I was in Canada, right? Got, like everybody in England was like, what? You know, so it was so Canadian to hear that. Um, but my dad got me into ice hockey and I started playing it. And we're walking back to the car one night, and this is in January because, you know, my, my birthday is January 13th, and I'm, I'm carrying my hockey bag. It's a pretty big bag full of stuff. And all of a sudden my dad's like, hey, why don't you give me your bag and I'll put it into the trunk of the car? And I said, oh, no, no, Dad, I got it. I'll, I'll put it in. He said, no, no, let me put it in. And he starts kind of being a little bit confrontational about it. And I was like, why is he being so confrontational? Like, why is he not letting me do the work? And all of a sudden, all of a sudden he says, okay, fine. And he opened up the back of the car, and there was an NES sitting there. And he was saving it for my birthday. He, you know, he hidden it there. But because I was putting my bag in the back, I kind of broke that magic. But, you know... It's funny how things work out. That became more magical than anything the way I discovered it. Rather than just getting a present and it was wrapped up and I'd open it up, it was it was something uh, a beautiful moment of 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 surprise, and uh, it was even a surprise for him. And I think that's what made it so magical. Like you guys have those experiences as well, though, right? You've had them. Yeah, absolutely. It's a,
0: yeah, Christmas Day. My mom's got a picture of me. I think I was unwrapping my. I got a Commodore Amiga in 1991 and i didn't think i was gonna i didn't even know i was getting it then i unwrapped it and yeah literally my eyes are about like three inches out of my skull it's like ridiculous <laughs> isn't it isn't it amazing that you have a photo of all
2: that yeah. have you uh do you remember what your first console was that you bought because i always find that interesting what you actually bought out of your own money what you kind of saved up for and how did that feel
3: well, oh you know it's so funny i it's weird when you're young because i look like cause i'm an adult now and i look back and i think Okay, my parents bought my NES, they bought my two Nintendo, they bought my two graphics, my Genesis. I was pretty lucky. But when I got my first system that I kind of put my own money into, it was a major freaking disaster. And it's something that I regret to this day. Because I wanted a Sega CD X um, (laughs) for Lunar, for Lunar, the Silver Star story. And I obviously, you know, it was quite expensive at the time. And so my parents were like, "Well, you have a lot of older games. Why don't you go and sell some of those?" And I was like, "Yeah, that's a good idea." So I went to this place I'll never forget it called Master Player. Uh, this is when I was 20 years old, uh, so it's like 25 years ago. And I, I sold all of my games for like in-store credit. And I swear to God, I got majorly ripped off, <laughs> majorly. Like, I don't even want to tell you all of the the boxed games that I sold them on the Super Nintendo and. I kept a lot of the games. I kept all the ones that really meant something, but I sold too much. And um, I, I got my Sega CDX and I, I got Lunar. And it was a good experience, but not the cost of what I sold. And we've all had those moments where we have purged. We've gotten rid of all our old systems and we're like, oh, my God. You know, I wish I didn't do that. So I, I have regret with that first purchase, which is really fun. Have you,
2: uh, with that in mind, I mean, like you say, we've all been there. I, I definitely was there with my PS1, with all my Mega Drive games. Um, but was there any sort of like Holy Grail game you traded in which you're still after?
3: Um, that, that's an interesting question. I, I'd have to go and have a look at, <laughs> I, I, I bought a few of them back. Yeah. I bought a few of them back. But um, one of them, it, you know, it's not really a Holy Grail as much as it's, I think it's worth a lot of money now. And that was Space Megaforce. And it's a, a side view shoot-em-up. Mm. And it's 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 a kind of a it's it's a good game. Uh, I don't know why it goes for so much money, but it's it's quite expensive now. And that was one that I had boxed complete, and I gave to them for like I swear to God, ten bucks. <laughs> and uh, I wish I could have that one back. Just. Just because it's I, for a collectability thing. And to be honest with you, I am a little nostalgic about it. I spent many nights in my parents' basement playing that game, for sure.
0: Didn't you give away all of your Mega Drive games and swap it for, like, a, a Dreamcast controller, Joe, at some stage or something? No, or it from?
2: was my, my brother gave away all... He traded in all our Mega Drive games for Gran Turismo for the PS1. Wow. <laughs> at our local game <laughs> shop, so... How, how, how many games did he trade in for that, do you remember? Um, A lot. Like, 20 games, Something like that. Mostly my games, because uh, I was still very young at the time, uh, and to this day I hate Gran Turismo. <laughs> <laughs> ah,
3: that's funny. Well, I would hate Gran Turismo if I lost twenty Dreamcast. Yeah, exactly. You mentioned
1: the uh, Turbo Graphics there, and we don't have much experience of the Turbo Graphics in the UK. Um, what are your fond memories of the system, and kind of what games stood out in the library for you?
3: Um, for sure, I, you know. Before I get into that, I got to ask you. I don't know a lot of the history of the Turbo Graphics in uh, England. Like, what, did it come out over there? It did come out over there, but as the was it the
0: Japanese version? Like, yeah, it did come out in, in nineteen ninety. I'm looking here, but I don't ever remember seeing them.
1: Yeah, no, PC no. engines, or they were like as rare as the Neo Geos here yeah. as
3: well. <laughs> yeah, you know. yeah, like twenty five. Oh god, twenty four years ago, I was twenty one. I went back to England, and I never saw. A so I really think either it just didn't come over there or it was a very limited or, you know, very limited distribution. But I, I don't remember it ever being over there. But I was over in Canada at the time. Um, and I'll tell you, when the Graphics was released here, nobody knew what the hell it was. I was a fanatical video gamer at that point, And so... There would be this place called Radio Shack and I'd go and check out the demo in the store. And I was like, oh, my God, I need this in my life. I had a lot of Japanese games on it. I was sold because I was I was one of the few kids in my neighborhood that was into anime. And so I really got into to this machine and I was like, I got to get this. Even when I got one, nobody in my neighborhood had one. Nobody. It's not that people didn't care. They just weren't aware the Nintendo was everything, and this TurboGrafx was weird, and it, they just didn't have the money to compete on a marketing level, I don't think. And it just seemed like it was a cheap uh, contender, and I knew that it was, and anybody who played video games knew that it wasn't, but it just didn't get the love it deserved, and so that's why I've been so confused that they bring out this TurboGrafx Mini now, and I've even said it in videos for my channel, who is this for? You know, it's for me and it's for people my age and maybe the curious, but even for people back in my day, didn't know what it was. So it's a strange thing to try to to try to push this machine. And I know they're doing uh, it on Amazon. So I think they're probably doing it to see how many numbers they get for pre-orders and then you know make the units uh, from there. But it's it was niche then. It's even more niche now.
0: You know, for sure. Yeah, I think it's interesting cause we covered that when it was a news item, you know, a few months ago. And we kind of all, you know, we're talking about it. And I think we find it interesting because it was a system that we didn't have a lot of experience of the game library. So it's kind of exploring something that as a kid was kind
3: of unattainable. So, so for you guys, are you interested in getting one? Is this something you're like, oh, I really want to get this? Yeah. And try it out, or like, I'm be be flat honest with me. Is it more of like, oh, I'm kind of curious, or do you? Is there a part of yourself that's like I don't really care that much, but I, you know, there's some history here. Like, I'm kind of curious.
1: I think it's the library actually, because it's a whole library that we've never explored. So. Mm. we're we're kind of used to the ones that we have in the uk and you know the stuff like n64 and stuff that everybody's explored but i've got an emulator that runs turbo graphics and i'm always trying to play some new titles and uh, see
0: what it's about like getting a new system isn't it really you know yeah yeah
3: (laughs) yeah I, i just i do you know my thing with these machines and i really wish they come out with this mini and i and i love it i think it's great but i just wish there was more games there should be the complete, you know, TurboGrafx lineup on there. I mean, you need an incentive nowadays. You know, we're in a time when, yeah, you can emulate things. Yeah, you can get things other ways. And there's so much other media to play and to do. Why should somebody go get a TurboGrafx? Like, they really need to push these machines. Even the uh, Genesis Mini, which I think is a great Mini. I, I just got one. I've just reviewed it. I'm going to – I think my review's coming out in a few days from now uh, when the embargo breaks – but i just wish there was more games i just i just i think there should be more games the games that are there are awesome but there should be complete lineups do you you know what i mean i might i might i think i am i just being so entitled that I want everything. But I feel in this day and age with old machines from 25 years ago, they should have everything.
0: You know what baffles me about them? And I've thought this with, you know, the Nintendo minis. uh, You know, why don't they put, like, you know, a Wi-Fi chip that would literally cost, like, what, a cent to put on there? And then, Mm -hmm. you know, you could hook it up to a store and you could buy the games on there, you know, some for a couple of bucks. And then, you know, because you put an SD card in there, download them, that'd be so simple for them to do. And they'd make so much more money doing it that way, I think.
3: Yeah, as as updates. So you you could... uh, download an update for maybe five to ten bucks or whatever it is i'd do that without in a i think everybody would just to, to to update the library of games like it really baffles me on the genesis that there's no revenge of shinobi that's been hitting me the last couple of days i'm like what it's on the mega drive japanese version but it's not on the american version and i'm like what that's my favorite genesis game of all time They want the collectors to buy two versions. That's why, probably. (laughs) Do you know, I have friends of mine that are buying two versions just to get that, which is crazy. So, yeah, kind of nuts. Well, going back to your school days, I mean, was gaming big at your school? You know, it's a time... I don't know if it was like this for you guys, but when I was in high school in in Canada here, everybody, all the guys were playing video games. And you know, I'm not going to sound stereotypical, but it really was more of a, a guy hobby. And I'm so happy that more girls later on would get into the hobby a lot more, but it was more of a guy dominated kind of thing. So I knew all my guy friends were playing video games. And But here's the thing. Only the nerdy guys would talk to each other about it. All the guys were, who were trying to like, I don't know, seem cool would not talk about it at school, but they talk about it anywhere. You'd walk home with them. They talk about it. But if you're in a class and you're like, hey, blah, blah, blah. I'd talk about this game. They'd shut down. I, it was class is a nerdy hobby. And nobody wanted to talk about even put it this way. If you think video games is a nerdy hobby, I just got into anime. I was the only kid in my high school that knew what anime was. And I I was listening to Japanese music on a Walkman. And I was like, God, if anybody, I was so terrified. If anybody heard the music that I was listening to on my Walkman, they would classify me as a heathen, you know, like this (laughs) this nerd heathen. I was terrified of somebody hearing the music because I was listening to music all in full Japanese. And I was scared to get, you know, titled as that ultimate nerd guy, which I guess I was, but I've never looked at any of these hobbies as being nerdy. I think that they are super fun, but yeah, like video gaming was big but nobody talked about it because they thought it was nerdy that's i guess that's my
1: answer for that one and i, I think your point about girls as well is very interesting because a lot of girls that we've spoken to have said that they they were into gaming but they weren't allowed to play on the machine they'd have to sit there whilst their brother played it yeah. or you know sit oh. and watch and now they've kind of got into gaming but yeah uh, we also had a very similar thing here
3: that's that that's funny and you know um, my wife i love talking to her about her video game memories and it's really neat. There's a time, I think, during the, the Super Nintendo and the Nintendo 64 where I think girls started to get a lot more into those games. And that's where Kim said that she really got into video gaming and stuff like that. And it was things like Ocarina of Time and Mario and Diddy Kong Racing and, uh, that really got her into it and obviously Donkey Kong Country. And, and I think there was a time – I saw the shift, and I'm not kidding you, I think it was when I was 21, Dragon Ball Sailor Moon <laughs> got released in this country, Gundam Wing as well. And, I, and, and uh, I saw a shift. I saw a major shift in fandom. And I remember going to a local anime store and there was girls there for the very first time. And I know it sounds really weird to say they were wearing cat ears and this is a kind of a stigma of that time period. <laughs> uh, but I started to realize that girls were getting into anime. They were getting more into video games and more into the culture of, of stuff like that. And it was becoming it was becoming not only more acceptable, it was acceptable. And I think guys always wanted to see girls more involved in it, uh, type of thing. But back in the 80s, it was just a weird time. But I think girls took control a little bit more in the the early 90s, uh, you know, so sorry, like mid 90s and uh, got more into it. So I, I'm really happy for that fact, I think. And it's so funny, I got to, sorry, one last little rant. I remember going to a comic book convention in 1988 and there was no girls in the comic book convention. It was just a, a big room, it was just guys walking around. And I remember seeing this one guy with a girl and I was like, how did he get her to come? I remember <laughs> it was like a huge deal. And now when you go to a convention, uh, especially like say an anime convention it's like all cosplay and it's like girls kind of like it's almost more girls at these conventions than yeah. guys and what a shift for in 30 years and i i'm quite happy to see that happen i always wanted to see that happen
2: yeah i mean it was just kind of like touching on how you said there was that Kind of shift with more women and stuff, like more girls coming and stuff, and that was like another thing for for us in the UK. Was when Pokemon came out, it made it okay for girls to kind of like anime, and then in hand, it like it made it okay for girls to get into video games. A lot of my girls, you know, girlfriends, uh, when I was younger and stuff, they would play Pokemon and then kind of move on to Final Fantasy. So I thought that was really interesting that you mentioned but that the
3: gateway drug. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. It's it, it was interesting when I was twenty one, which is I guess well, God. 2000, it was actually 1995. I was, did you know, this is really interesting. Maybe you guys don't know this. I was was part of the big fanzine scene in England um, for RPGs. So there was like, back then, this is like when magazines were still very prevalent. Um, There was a a fanzine called Roll Call created by a girl called Rachel out there and a whole bunch of other fans. I used to do artwork for it. And I remember coming to England, to Birmingham for a convention, 1995, and I—the one thing that I remember with all the fans back then all of RPGs and video games and all that kind of stuff—they were so mad at uh, Canada and America because we got all the RPGs, we got everything, and uh, like England got screwed. Like everybody was so mad that I got to play Final Fantasy III the way I could. They had to. Imported, and then you had to get like NTSC TV. It was really a lot of work to play RPGs and things like that in England. And I'm not sounding funny because I'm British and I love England more than anything, but I was very happy that I was a video gamer living in Canada, kind of America, because I could get everything. And that was the only reason (laughs) why. And I remember going into British video game stores back then and going, man, this is behind the times. (laughs) I remember thinking... Like where's the games? Like where's the games? And I remember what was it? Like uh, Star Fox was called Star Wing. Yeah. It was like just yeah. like walking into the Twilight Zone because I was English. I'd grown up in Canada and then I'd gone back to England and I thought, what is going on with the video gaming scene in England? And I that was one of the reasons why there was a there was a time when I moved back to England for about five months. But it's one of the reasons why I didn't stay for the long run because I don't I I couldn't. I didn't think video gaming um, was getting the respect that it deserved over there. And I, it's nobody in England's fault. It was the way they were, like, bringing it out over there. I, England got screwed. you know what I mean? The the
0: gaming shops were a big part of it, too. Because, I mean, for me, I always went to my local independent gaming shops, you know, which there aren't, there aren't many around anymore. Um, yeah. But what was your kind of game stores like in Canada then? I mean, were there any that you used
3: to get all your games from? And what were they like to go to? They, um... Well, you know, just for like, like you guys, uh, like England was back then, it was ba- basically computer stores, you know, like for the NES and Nintendo days. You go into a computer store and they had a small section of Nintendo games. And then that starts to get bigger and bigger. Uh, but the thing that, you know, where we would get most of our games from was uh, like supermarket stores. I know we have huge ones here and they would have a video section and they would have the latest games. They were a really good place to go at a certain place in the late 90s. Um, but we also had EB Games showed up. And they've been hit or miss over the years. I'm not even going to. That's a whole other rant. Um, and, you know, like, isn't it funny where you'd, you'd have to go to a store where now everything is, I order. I pre-order everything on Amazon. Everything is Amazon now. Everything is Amazon. And... Uh, yeah, but I think those are the main kind of places. We had some other places like Willow Video Games and things like that, but uh, it, yeah, it never really stabilized out. And EB Games here, I don't know. I, I think they're on their last days. They probably have another four to five years before they're gone. I don't. I think with Amazon the way it is, I think all those old stores will kind of disappear. We have we have some local retro stores here, and they survive by just selling the retro games super like cheaper. Uh, you know, at a discounted type of price. But even then, how long is that going to last for? I, th- I think there's still a little bit of a room for them as well, but it's hard to say. Is that
1: anything that you've kind of always been wanting to get or you've really got a good deal on?
3: Uh, you know, I've had a lot of people over here, uh, some people who watch the show, other people who have shows who've come over here for the day, they always walk into my room, uh, my video game, my video game room where I film the show, and they always say the same thing. Wow, it's a lot smaller than I thought it was. It's kind of an illusion that I have a really gigantic collection. It's I don't I, I have a lot of stuff, yes. But not compared to some people out there. Some people have like complete collections. I don't have I don't think I have any complete collections for anything. I don't I collect more emotionally on games that kind of meaning something to me. But is there anything that I'm kind of missing? Um, yeah, do you know what? There's one game I've been thinking about the last week. There's no way I'm going to get it because uh, it's just too expensive. It's just stupid how expensive it is. Uh, it's a, the Japanese uh, a Super Famicom, the Ninja Warriors again. It's a, a side view action beat em up from the early 90s and one that we got a Super Nintendo port of, or you know, release of, I should say, which is great, and we also have, there's a re-release of that game now called I think it's like the ninja saviors. Is, uh, the,
2: is that the one where they're like robot ninjas and you've got the pink, the blue one?
3: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah.
2: For
3: sure. <laughs> And So I, I, want this, I would love the Super Famicom version uh, of that game, uh, but the thing is, is it's so, it's like $300, and I'm just like, no. If it was maybe 70 to 80 bucks, I might think about it, but $300 is just silly for something that's kind of a, Something you you want for part of your collection? It's like, I, I can't justify that. I just I just really can't. It doesn't make any sense. But I think that's one thing that I you know if if you kind of which there's a lot of wants right. I'm sure you guys are the same. You just want things. Oh, I'd love to have that, but it doesn't make any sense for you to pay the money for it.
0: I saw that video you put up where it was, you had like a video from 1991, but then a bit later there was like, you know, a 1999 clip in there when you showed your uh, your late 90s bedroom. And oh, even God. back then you had a great collection. I mean, even an
3: arcade machine in there too. So it looked like you'd yeah. been collecting for a long time. It didn't start off as a collection. And it's still, to me, it's really weird. I don't, I never call it a collection. I, I may call it then a video, but to me, emotionally... It's like all the games that I really love. Like, I don't have a copy of NHL 94 up on my you know, on my shelves uh, because I don't have an emotional uh, attachment to it. If I did, it'd be there. But all those games I grew up with, I, I played the hell out of them and I, I kept them. Uh, for most of them until I sold a lot of them for the Sega uh, you know CDX, which was, Jesus, I'd have a bigger collection if it wasn't for that machine uh but i just collected over the years and i uh, well sorry you know bought games played them and put them on the shelf because i loved them I and mean, i didn't and i loved the box arts and i loved all everything it represented to me and over time it seemed to build up even that arcade machine you talk about i got that in the late 90s and i got it for a steal i got that for 50 dollars and it got delivered to my house wow <laughs> i mean there was there were different times back then i mean you could honestly, I could walk into a Blockbuster video and buy used video games for $20 each. I mean, and I thought that was expensive at the time. <laughs> or oh, used video games for $20? No, it seems a little expensive, but it's, it's, <laughs> it's kind of funny that. And and over time, it's, it's, it's created as I've gone in, into my 40s. I'm 45 now. It's kind of a representation of my life's love for video games. And I, I will walk into the room on a night with a drink, uh, an alcoholic drink, and I was stand there, and I will kind of get like sometimes a little bit emotional, thinking, "Oh man, I remember getting that game 25 years ago," and it's it's kind of strange, and and that's kind of what the show has mean to me, uh, meant to me over time doing it, that all of these games, uh, you know, mean something. It's like the passage of time; they're almost a passage of of time, and our, our lives are very fleeting and very short, and Sometimes you can look back and they're, they're very nostalgic memories and they give you good feelings of the past and they also are a representation of the passage of time and how quickly time goes by and how precious it is. And that's kind of what my show a lot of times is about is about that life is precious and, and that moments are important and your friends are important. and uh, you know and you know going playing some video games with your friends in somebody's basement in the 90s, Means something it means something to you guys it means uh, you know something to everybody who's listening right now those are important moments and i i i try to capture the, those essences sometimes when i do this show and that's really one of the founding things of doing my own show on youtube and are you guys the same as me i don't feel the same joe i, I remember
0: When I look at my games, which shop I bought it in, I remember the day probably when I got it. I remember
3: every single game and which place I got it.
2: Yeah, I'm 100% the same. I I think every single game in my collection, I can remember where it came from.
3: You know, it's terrible that it's almost like, I don't know, it's like, I don't know if ever anybody else has it quite how I have it. It's kind of scary where I can measure where I was in life through a video game at any time. Uh, I can think of when I got my copy of Forest of Eden, a Japanese import. I got it in 1995 in Birmingham at a convention, and I remember going, talking to a bunch of people, saying, "Oh my God! I heard there's a Tengai Makyo Forest of Eden game," and we all ran over to try to buy it from each other, and I snagged and bought it first. And I see, I remember everything that happened to do with that game, who I was standing with, all the names of the people, what year it was, and it's it's surreal. I mean. It's almost, I don't, I wish I could remember mathematics like that because I certainly don't. But I think I, I can really remember really important times with video games and things like that. Even the most unimportant things with video games I remember. It's weird. I, it's almost strange to me. And I know that even when I get into my 60s and 70s, I'll be able to tell you what I was doing when I was 20 years old when that game came out or that piece of music reminds me of and i it's really weird how all that is it's 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 strange i don't know i don't know how, how that, that you know all that all got so entangled for me video games and memories and moments and emotions as powerful as it has
2: been do you think that's kind of like one of the main inspirations for your youtube channel or did you have some
3: other inspirations to start it um there was there's two things definitely the avgn the angry video game nerd was a yeah. uh, I was watching him and I was so blown away at this guy and what he was doing. It was so revolutionary. And it's funny for anybody now to look back, if you get like a younger person now to watch some old AVGN episodes, they, they might say, oh, that's kind of medieval. Oh, that's kind of rough. But he was breaking new ground, like talking about video games and all of that and just doing this angry rant and and showing video game footage, I'd never seen anything like it, and I was so blown away by it. And I was also, Phil, you know, like doing my own movies and doing my own stuff. And I was like, man, can I do something like that? I I'd really like to do something like that. Uh, but I'm I, but I remember thinking, I don't want to do what he's done. I don't want to be a copy of him. I don't want to be. And I I'm not saying anything like the irate gamer. Uh, he was quite literally. Very much like the AVGN. And I knew that I didn't want to be like that. I wanted to be something something to do with me, like to do with my experiences. And I, I didn't know how I was going to do it at first. I had no roadmap. All I knew is I wanted to do a video game show on YouTube and I didn't know how to do it. And that, that, that was my starting foundations. And I thought, I'm going to build a shelf. And I built a shelf behind me. And I'm going to put all my video games. And here's the thing. Here's what's so funny. I was building this shelf. And I thought, people are going to laugh at me when they see this because they're going to say, oh, my God, this guy's got all these old video games behind him. And they're going to laugh at me that I, this is a, – what a, what a nerd. what a they, Oh, my God. He, he's going to talk about memories of video games? You have to remember in 2008, I know this sounds crazy, nobody had a show on YouTube where they had all their video games behind them. Nobody had done that. Yeah. The ADGN was sitting around – by his computer and he was talking about things and he'd maybe show a game. But he wasn't talking about video game memories. He was doing a parody on how much he hated the game. He was living that up. Um, nobody really did the, the games behind them. And especially in the nostalgic way that I was about to do it. And I was really nervous about it. I thought, oh my God, I'm putting a copy of Earthbound behind me. Nobody had done that before. And it's so weird. Like Now I look at YouTube and you can't have a YouTube show about video games without your video game collection behind you. I think it's so funny now, especially because I was so nervous about it. And some guy, oh, my God, it must be about a year ago, he came into one of my videos and he left a comment, and he goes, oh, you're just another one of those games, uh, one of those guys talking about video games with your video game collection behind you. Yeah, everybody else has already done that. And I was like, man, I created this. It was, so, <laughs> it was really funny for me. Um, but those are my inspirations that I had all these, uh, I don't know. It was like a, emo- I sound so crazy to say emotions that I wanted to talk about, about video games that I, I didn't think had been talked about. And I did you know, talking about video game memories. And I thought maybe people can relate to this. And that's the one thing that I feel so good about is that when I talk about those memories, it's like, it's not as though it's that my memories are important. They're just my memories that people watching the show, uh, one of you know, they relate to their own memories i think oh my god yeah my own memories and that's what's important it's creating that emotion and that is that is the success for me that is the success for me where somebody sees you know uh, me talking about me getting say my first machine or something like that i tell everybody what it meant to me but it's what it meant to them that is the success for me i i'm so happy That they'll watch and go, oh my god, my memories, and that's what video gaming is all about. That is what it's all about, and that's that's the fun of my, you know, me doing my show, and then somebody else will come into the comments and go, man, I remember Fantasy Star as well. I I love that, and they will say a memory for them. That's that's what I really love to see the most.
0: One video that I watched of yours that I thought was really powerful, and you know, I watched this with a, with a lump in my throat, was the one you did about Mario Kart 64, um, and that being the, the, the only game that really got your dad into video games.
3: Yeah, that, that was a, a really... That was, do, you know, do you know the thing about that video is... Uh, I'll, I'll quickly summarize for anybody who's listening who hasn't and, uh, watched <laughs> it, obviously, but I talk about my father uh, playing Mario Kart for the first time and then just after that, he died of uh, lung cancer. And it wasn't even that long afterwards. But it, what the video was about was, uh, you know, my father playing Mario Kart, and he never played any video games. He played a little bit of combat, as I said on the Atari with me when I was younger. But he, I came home early, and I caught my dad playing Mario Kart, and I couldn't believe it. I mean, my father was a very old-school man, very hardworking man, but he didn't play video games. He thought, you know, video games were childish. He thought it was really for kids. And I was, you know, it was a time in my life when I was finally kind of becoming more of an adult. And I was looking at my father as not being a father, but as a person. And we were communicating on that level. And we were really getting along and really having these meaningful conversations. And so it was another moment when I came home and I, I had so much respect for my father. And I just, and I think my father finally realized what I was doing was fun. It wasn't just a kid thing. It was fun. And, and you know, it's okay for a, an adult to have fun as well. And uh, the thing about that video, here's the, here's the emotional thing that's really crazy, is that, yeah, my father died after that. Uh, and it was very short afterwards. It really happened quickly. Uh, you know, we were all smokers in that. You know, we were so stupid. And thank God I eventually quit smoking. But uh, he died from lung cancer from smoking. if anybody's smoking out there yeah it happens it does happen um but the emotion the other emotional thing is I made the video and it really meant a lot to me oh my god it felt so therapeutic to do that video and to talk about that experience and I put it out there and the thing that got me is that my cousins who watched the show told my dad's brother you know they told their dad uh that I'd done this episode and he watched this episode and he, he broke down. It just, it just killed him. Wow! Uh, you know, it just was. It was so emotional. And I, I heard this uh, that that uh, you know, from from my aunt, that he'd watched the video and he just, it just completely knocked him out about his brother and you know, his brother's you know, son, me, who had done this video to to kind of honor my father. And I think it that that that's the thing that's emotional for me is thinking about how much my uncle it made him emotional. So you know, the thing is in, on on YouTube is that. There's so much that you can do. There's so much you can share and uh, do a lot of good in the world. I know we live in a, the age of outrage, and I know we live in a time where, you know, on, on, on YouTube, uh, being negative and being really, uh, you, know, you know, angry about things and mad about things create a lot of views and they, they can create a lot of traction uh, for sure. But I think that's why I need to do the show to show another side of it and to show that there's other, there's other parts of this hobby that are, that are quite good. And that's why we're all here. I think that's why I have, I have a very niche, loyal audience because I think they get that. And they come into the videos because they just want to have a good time. And they just want to enjoy themselves. And I think they want to get away from the negativity because uh, there's a lot of negativity in the world these days. And I think they come into the videos for that. And one of the best compliments I've ever gotten It was about a year ago where somebody wrote on Twitter to me, you know, Johnny, I I love it that I don't know what your political beliefs are, and I love it that I don't know what you're into that way. I just can kind of come in and watch your videos and have fun, and that's why I keep it that way. I don't discuss politics. I don't discuss anything controversial online in any regard that way. If there's something wrong with a video game or something I do not like, I will say it but I won't create drama for the sake of creating drama. You know what I mean? I won't just be like spiteful and calling out other YouTubers and doing nasty things like that. I mean, that, oh God, I'd be a lot bigger if I covered all of the the bad stuff in this world to do with video games. And I, that's not the way I want to go about it. I, I want to create a show that I enjoy creating and I can look back on with fondness for sure. So sorry, that's a big thing <laughs> Well, Well, themes
1: like that, you know, kind of memories of dads playing computer games and stuff yeah. um i i've got one particularly of my dad playing Wii bowling and that was like the one time that he thought right i can get into gaming because it's accessible and i guess that was the same with mario kart 64 as one of those pick up and play kind of accessible games and invited was your, was a your lot dad, more was people dad,
3: like was your dad not into video games
1: uh, he, oh. he he liked the look of them, but he was never up for interacting with them until the um, Wii bowling. And then he was like, right, bowling, I know that. <laughs> so you know.
3: It, It's funny, Nintendo was really onto something, you know, with the Wii. They, they really tapped into something briefly. And, uh, you know, like even with the Nintendo Switch now, I don't know, you know, is it, would that get our fathers into it? I don't think so. You know, for my dad, it was something about, the analog controller. He was trying to c- control it like a steering wheel. It was really weird. It was really funny seeing him trying to control it, and and for your father, and you know, trying to use that Wii, remote. Was it something an extension? It was something different than a controller with a million buttons on it that are like I don't understand how to play this. To be honest with you, don't you think a lot of video games like are super non accessible for non gamers? I mean, it's like trying to get. Could you imagine me trying to get my mom? To play Call of Duty or,
1: <laughs> or World um, of Warcraft. <laughs> you know,
3: yeah, you know for sure. I, I mean, it's very like I say. Here, mom, here's my Nintendo Switch handheld. Go play Fire Emblem, The Three Houses. <laughs> She'd be like, "What?" <laughs> but the way I mean,
0: like everyone's yeah. grandma had a Wii. You know, is is like just a, a household item, wasn't it? Almost.
3: Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. Everybody, everybody had everybody had a Wii. Everybody still has one in their closet somewhere, <laughs> if they like it or not. You know, it's funny.
0: Well, speaking of, you know, your kind of personal nostalgia, you do top 10 lists on your channel. Um, you've done, like, top 10 GameCube games in the last week, top 10 Master System. How do you right. kind of pick those? Are they, like, personal nostalgia or is it critical acclaim? And I know you even rated um, Breath of the Wild as your favorite video game ever. Does that kind of still stand?
3: Oh, definitely. I, the, you know, the funny thing, when I, was on U- when I first came onto YouTube in 2008, I knew I could be a massive YouTuber if I did top 10 lists. And I just couldn't bring myself to do it. It felt like I would be selling out in a way that I'd just be producing content that I didn't believe in. And I was just like, no, I'm not going to do that. I did some top 10 lists back then. That's how I knew they would be big. They went huge. They had like 100,000 views. And I was like, if I want to be big, I'll do top 10 lists. And I was like, no, I don't. I, there was Because there was so much I wanted to cover. And it's taken me about nearly like 10 years to get a lot of it out. Where now that I've gotten a lot of stuff off my chest in the last 10 years, I think, I'm ready to do a top 10 list that is meaningful and I sit down and I go through all of my games. Like say for the GameCube, I have all of them out and I'm like – and I'm, I'm moving them all around and I, I take days to do it. I don't do it like easily and I create my list and I'm like, no, that one goes – yeah, that goes there. And then I create a list that I 100% will stand uh, by till the damn death. You know, because I have to. Once I put that online, there's no removing it. There's no removing the comments. There's no removing everybody seeing it. So I have to stand behind it. And I do. And so the GameCube, I feel 100% on that. And, you know, it's so funny. Johnny, don't, why, it, why didn't you mention Twin Snakes? Why didn't you mention uh, Tales of Symphonia uh, and you know, stuff like that? I, and it's like, you know what? I love those games and I really do enjoy them. These games were the top ten. They had to to type of be there. So, oh, what was the second part of the question? Oh, the Breath of the Wild. Breath yeah. of the Wild obviously is still number one. I mean, that game, what a remarkable game! I little did I know when I first played it, I, I you know that it would be my number one game of all time. I had a something magical happen though when I first played it. I was like, "There's something with this man. There's something about this." And, and I, I went and did the most craziest claim I've ever done on my show. I remember I was, in, I went to a damn forest to film this, which seemed stupider. But I, I went into a forest and I claimed, this is a 10 out of 10 game. And I, I just stood by it because I, I knew it was. I knew it was. And all my years playing video games, this was a 10 out of 10 game. I remember there was a little bit of doubt, not a lot. Was a little bit saying, "Oh, did Nintendo pay you to say that?" And I thought, "I wish," (laughs) because not only would I be saying something truthful, I got paid for it too. I wish there was none of that, um, at all. But yeah, I knew the game was a ten out of ten game, and I, I I still stand behind it. I will Breath of the Wild to be a ten out of ten game? Who knows? Maybe. But it was just that time when it came out was perfect, and just the the size of the game. And all the things you can do with it, the physics engine, I mean, it's remarkable. I still can't believe Nintendo made that game. I feel, it was like, Nintendo made that? Really? Unreal.
2: With that in mind, do you have any sort of, like, guilty pleasure games that you kind of sometimes feel a bit guilty about mentioning or maybe kind of, you know, sweep under the carpet so nobody knows about?
3: (laughs) Bad games you love. It's funny because I'm going to do an entire episode on that. Oh, really? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I, I actually, in my games room, I have these piles. I had a friend over the other day, and he's like, and uh, we've recently been hanging out. I see he's a mutual, another mutual friend. He's been helping me capture some footage. And he comes in, and he's like, what's that pile? What's that pile? I said, those are episodes. And he's like, really? And what I'll do is I'll, I'll put, pick a theme for an episode, and I'll go collect all the games. And I'll put them down. And there's been one sitting in there for seven months that I still haven't gone to. And then I'm like, okay, I gotta. it's time to do it. I feel that the time's right when I'm in the, the right emotion for it. I'll do it. So one of the ones that I, uh, I'll mention is uh, Final Fantasy X2, or X-2, with all the girls in it. I wasn't working at the time, and I absolutely loved the game. I finished that game. I put more hours into that than anything. And it's kind of like a bit of an idol singer game where you're just play, playing these uh, girl characters and they change outfits. And it's it's ridiculous. It's over the top. It's major fan service. But my, I, I you know what? I had a lot of time on my hands and I, I really enjoyed it. And that's one that I've not pushed on the show, but I want to mention in the future is it's a guilty pleasure. It's one of those games that I'm like, yeah, I, I love this game, but I don't say it too loud. You know, it's like one of those.
0: Sometimes it's just like where you were in life
3: at the time and the nostalgia and stuff it brings back to, isn't it? oh definitely and especially Final Fantasy x 2 was such an interesting uh, game concept with the, all the girl characters and I man I you mean know me, me being a guy uh, you know like I, I, I you know I like girl characters so I, I you know I, I enjoyed the game that way it was quite a lot of fun
0: well, it's been amazing getting your stories, Johnny. I mean, just before we kind of wrap things up, um, obviously you've been going on YouTube for 11 years now. Do you think it's too late for someone new to come along and make it big on YouTube now? And, and if not, what advice would you give people who are just starting
3: out? Oh, wow, isn't that an amazing one? And, you know, it's, it's funny. I see new people starting every day, and I see just as many quitting as well. But I also see just, just a few major success stories. Like Scott the Waz. that guy came out of nowhere and has gone massive. So, okay, is there room for people now on YouTube? Oh, yes. More so than ever, I believe. More so than ever, I believe. I mean, here's the, here's the thing that I give to anybody who wants to start a YouTube show and wants to kind of delve in. The thing that you need to do is be yourself, look at your strengths, and do something different, but not different en- enough that it's alienating to you as a person. It's it's really interesting, like Scott the Woz, I'm just gonna use him as an example, incredible editor, incredibly funny guy, makes the humor part of the videos, and people love those style of videos. And so those are his strength, and he went with it, and he just kept on doing it, and it took off. Uh, for me, I'm not a I'm not a, really a gag guy. I can't do voiceover very good. I'm not very good at those style of videos. I my strengths are that, and I only realized what my strengths are. It took me a long time to realize them. Is that I can I can communicate uh, a little bit better on YouTube now. Uh, you know I, I can show the games and I I I um. I think like stick with your strengths, what you're good at, but don't also be afraid of your weaknesses. So if you're scared to talk in front of a a microphone or a, a camera, do it and push yourself to do it. I was a guy who was a smoker with a bandana. I was super thin. I was super nervous. I had no confidence. But yet I knew I had to talk about video games. And I put a gun to my head to make myself get in front of the camera. It was like that every time. And I forced myself to do it until today. And I still, I still get in front of the camera. I enjoy it now. But uh, at, at first I didn't. It was really like, nerve-wracking. I was like, oh, my God, this is, this is terrifying. But there's room. And just go in. And, and the, my main advice is this. Have fun. Enjoy yourself. Enjoy yourself. You know, like have a bit of fun doing this. Uh, and also, my last, p- final piece of advice: create a show that you would watch personally, so that you would put it on and enjoy. If you put on your own show and you can't, you have a hard time kind of getting through it, you're on the ro- you're in the right track, but on the wrong track. Go and redo it. Don't have any qualms about that. Until you make it into, you know, a show that you like, and and yeah, you know. <laughs> I feel sorry for people now. I could start off in the early days of YouTube and suck and get better over time where nowadays you really have to come on and be a little bit stronger. You have to know lighting, you have to know editing. It's, it's it's quite hard to be honest with you. I think it's I think it's very difficult, but it's there if you want to do all the the work before you create your first episode. And there's no there's no guarantees for anybody that it's going to do well. I've had people come before me and after me that have done better and worse than me uh honestly I should honestly have uh, I think I checked out my analytics the other day I should have 375,000 uh subscribers not the I have 217,000 and the reason why is because I do content that I want so uh I confuse my audience at times sometimes I'll do a, a Dungeons and Dragons episode where a lot of people came in just for video games and sometimes I do anime where some people just came in for Uh, video games again so a lot of people have a a lot of hate relationship sometimes with what i'm doing but it's the people that stick around that's what you're making the show for type of thing so there's my long answer for you guys (laughs) i I just want to say thank you so much for having me
0: yeah it's been a pleasure johnny like we say keep up the good work on the channel and here's to the next 10 years of it as well um thank you so much for coming on it's been great talking to
3: you thank you guys